This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. This morning's sermon text is from James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow you will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that peers for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is God's word. Uh, Good morning. Welcome to City Church. I'm Ted Sin. It's my uh, responsibility and opportunity to preach to you from Scripture. Uh, This morning, last week, we finished up our series in the book of Titus. We were trying to get our biblical bearings as a church body turning three years old. And and this morning, we're going to start our series in the New Testament book of James. Um, It is generally assumed, and I think rightfully so, that the book of James was written by Jesus' brother, uh, James the Just, the leader of the Jerusalem church. And it's also generally assumed, and I think rightfully so, um, that that being written in the early 40s, so about 10 years after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, that the book of James is the first New, New Testament book Um, to be written. Uh, In the coming weeks, I'm going to give you uh, more introductory thoughts as we study this book together, especially when we uh, begin to uh, study chapter uh, one together. But let me just kind of simply say this uh, to get us uh, going. The book of James is going to read like and feel like, and I'm going to present it to you much more like I did uh, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament or the teaching and preaching of Jesus, and it's a lot less like um, the epistles of Paul and and Peter. Um, So, for example, we're going to start in chapter 4 and not in chapter 1. Verse 1, with Paul's letters, as you'll recall from the book of Titus, it's usually best to start at the beginning of one of Paul's letters and read it all the way through because Paul uses logic and thought flow um, between passages a lot more than, than James does. If you want to understand a text in one of Paul's books, you generally need to know what came ahead of it. There's a lot of flow to it. And there's, of course, connectivity and there's connections and there is some logical flow in the book of James, but nothing like um, the book Uh, of Paul, like Titus, um, for example. So this morning, we're going to pick up uh, chapter 4, 13 to 17. This is, um, if not the classic text on planning in the Bible, um, it's certainly one of the classic texts on how to look to the future, how to consider what's in front of you, how to move uh, into it. And the reason I picked this text this week, not because it's some foundational text you have to understand to understand all of James, I picked picked it because I just think it, it flows well considering what we looked at last week. Last week's sermon um, at the end of Titus was the most specific I have ever been in talking about where I think God is taking us in the future. It's the most specific I've ever been in in plans and strategies and goals. Um, And and in that sermon, multiple times I said the phrase, Lord willing. And I kind of began to to realize, not necessarily through specifics, because I won't bring up last week's sermon again, most likely in this sermon, but just from a thematic level, when you spend that much time talking about the future in specific ways, I just felt like the place to go this week is to give the other side of the coin, and that is this passage uh, from the book of James on how to consider the future. Let's, Let's study it this way. 
the folly and the rebellion of presumptuous planning, uh, the call to submissive planning, and the gracious, glorious, and eternal gospel. Uh, the, the folly and the rebellion of presumptuous planning, the call to submissive planning, and the gracious, glorious, and eternal gospel. All right? So if you have your uh, scripture text, get them out. Um, if you have your Bibles open, that's fine as well. Uh, let me pray for us and we'll get going. Most gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do ask that you'd bless um, this series in the book of James. We ask that you would give us understanding, that you would teach us, that you would be our counselor, our comforter, our guide, our Lord, our teacher, uh, preeminently our Savior. We pray that in this text this morning um, that we would hear from you, that our hearts would be engaged in this scripture and in these truths and in the ideas delivered here, uh, uh, that our hearts would be engaged at such a level that we have to say that you came and were in us and among us, that you are clearly present with us. We pray for your, your word to have power this morning. We pray for your spirit uh, to be alive and well in us, that you would cause in us to decrease whatever is opposed to you, that you would rile up inside of us and enliven inside of us um, the, the new life and the new heart uh, that you have given to us. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, first, the folly and the rebellion of presumptuous planning, or to kind of say it differently, using the ideas and the terminology from the passage, the ignorance and the evil of considering, making assumptions about, strategizing and planning for the future, okay? The ignorance and evil of planning for the future apart from a vibrant, current, surrendered relationship with King Jesus, the folly first of being a presumptuous planner. Look at verse 13 with me, the, the portrait painted by James of a fictitious merchant. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. To see the presumptuousness of this statement, you have to keep in the back of your mind what Paul is going to call us to in verse 15. He says, instead of saying this, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and, and do this and we will do that. The planning of verse 13 that is presumptuous it is not so much presumptuous because of what is there or what is said. It is presumptuous because of what is not there. It's presumptuous because of what is not said, a surrender to God. James is painting the picture of a self-confident planner as opposed to a God-confident planner who believes that they can decide in advance what lies ahead for them in the future. Look at it again. Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, and we will spend a year there, and we will trade, and we will make a profit. Look at all that is decided in advance. And you just have to assume from the rest of the text that this is decided based on the merchant's trust in his own wit, his own determination, his own perceived knowledge and wisdom. The merchants will decide when they go, today or tomorrow. They'll decide where they go to such and such a town. They'll decide how long they're going to stay there. We'll spend a year there. They, they decide in advance the availability and the willingness of other human beings to trade with them. Literally, it says, we will engage in business. And the merchants are quite sure about the outcome of their plans. We're going to make a profit. Uh, James is teaching this when considering this verse and what he says in verse 15, that any level of plan for any part of our lives, for any part of the future, whether it be where we think we're going to go to lunch, 
who we plan to see tomorrow, where we hope to be next year, how we want to retire, any level of plan for any part of our lives, for any part of the future that is derived from within and not made in the context of a relationship with Jesus is foolish and rebellious. Look at verse 13. We look at it and we're like, what's the big deal? I mean, to me, it looks like a good example of planning. There's detail, there's specificity, there's flexibility, there's short-term and long-term perspective, there's positive thinking. We look at it, and and by the way, I live my life, and by the way, you live yours, um, by how we decide who to go to lunch uh, uh, with, by how we decide where we're going to be in a year, by, by what we think... We, we think verse 13 is pretty good and pretty wise. And we really don't see it as all that big of a deal. And James is saying it's foolish and it's rebellious. First, verse 14, the self-confident, self-originating plan is foolish. You say this, uh, talking about what he said in verse 13, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. James says, first of all, be humbled by your ignorance of tomorrow. We, we tend to plan for tomorrow as if tomorrow is in our hands, and James tells us that it's quite the opposite. We, we tend to plan for tomorrow as though we bring to tomorrow things, and James says in actuality, tomorrow brings things to us. This is a consistent teaching in Scripture, it's specifically the wisdom literature of Scripture. Proverbs 27.1, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. If we'll just stop and think about this wisdom from James, we've actually, we experience this reality on a very regular basis. One way to think about the evening news is to see it as a cataloging of events that happened in our world um, that, that, that that day violated people's plans. The evening news is in large part, we tend to think of it as separate from us, but it's proof to us of all the stories that tomorrow brought into today, and these stories and these events crushed the plans of people. Tsunamis, hurricanes, earthquakes, political upheaval, genocide and oppression, a madman, an assassin, a terrorist. Or, think about it this way, how many How many are living today a different retirement than they planned? How many are now expecting a different retirement, if they're expecting one at all, than originally thought? And why is that? Because tomorrow brought into today a significant economic recession, if not a depression. James says that it's foolish to make these self-originating, self-confident plans about tomorrow. It's foolish because we refuse to live in the reality that we don't know the circumstances of tomorrow. And to a very, very large degree, we have no control over the circumstances of tomorrow. And the most significant aspect of tomorrow that we have no control over is whether we'll even be alive. Keep reading. What is your life? For you are a mist. It's, it's a rare word in the New Testament. It can mean mist or vapor or smoke. Keep reading. You're a smoke that appears for a little time and then vanishes. The text tells us bluntly what our deepest fears whisper to us when we slow down long enough to listen. That is this, that our lives on earth are transitory. They are insubstantial in the grand scheme of things. 
And James mixes metaphors here. He, 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 and listen, I know this is stark. I know that this is less than bubbly, but James is trying to get our attention. He, he uses these two metaphors. He says that like morning fog that dissipates when it surrenders to the sun, so is our physical life on earth. Here today, barely noticeable, gone tomorrow. Second metaphor, the, the words translated for appear and vanish are literally to shed light and to cease from shining. Again, mixed metaphors, our earthly lives first, apart from the gospel, apart from a vibrant relationship with Jesus, our earthly lives are like smoke. We're here until the wind drives us away. And second, our lives are like lights, lights on, lights off. We appear and then we vanish. James is teaching against independent, self-confident planning because we're ignorant of the circumstances of tomorrow and the most critical circumstance of tomorrow, tomorrow, whether we're alive or not, is not in our hands. And again, we know even this from our lives. We, we know this, but this is the definition of folly. The definition of folly is to continue to live and operate in contradiction to what we know to be true. We know this. If you've been alive for more than a couple of years, you know the transitory and insubstantial nature of our physical lives on earth. In early December of last year, I woke up at four o'clock, which is generally when I get up and I did the first thing I always do, which is I check my phone due to the nature of my job for any sorts of emergency via text, um, via email, uh, via call. And I read the following email from my dad, subject, Gary Birch passed away. Email content. Not sure if you heard this yet, but after a successful two-year battle with cancer, Gary died of a massive heart attack last night. He was 59. Mr. Birch was the dad of one of my best friends in high school. We thought that the Lord had delivered him from cancer, and then his heart just gives way at 59. A few months before that, I received a text message during an early morning meeting with one of you and it was letting me know that one of the elders at the church I previously served at passed away instantly while jogging. His heart failed him. A few months before that, I received a text message in the middle of the night letting me know that one of the young men that I served in the student ministry in Lakeland had passed away early one morning. He was driving to his apartment after studying for a final with a friend. He fell asleep behind the wheel and he was killed when his vehicle slammed into a tree at full speed. Lights on, lights off. We appear for a little time, we vanish. We have no idea the circumstances of tomorrow and whether we'll be alive to encounter them. And planning as though we control the present or determine the future is just foolish. But also presumptuous planning, a planning that is apart from a vibrant, dependent, prayerful and submissive relationship with Jesus. Any plan that is not in connection to our relationship with Jesus is not only foolish, it's rebellious. Look at verse 16 with me. As it is. So James describes presumptuous planning in verse 13. He explains the folly of it in verse 14. In a moment, we're going to look at 15 where he tells us what to do instead. But now, verse 16, James says, as it is, or with what you're currently doing, speaking to all of us, chiefly me, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. 
And the word for boast here is not the English word for brag. In the English, English language, boasting is almost always negative. In the New Testament, this word for boasting, it appears over 30 times, and it's, it's usually not translated boasting. It's usually translated this way, to put confidence in, to put trust in, to rejoice in. It's a morally neutral term, and, and, and the boasting is either right or wrong, not dependent on whether you boast, but what you boast in what you trust in, what we rejoice in. If we keep in mind what, what James has said, if we keep in our minds what he's going to tell us to do in verse 15, we see that James is teaching this. When we make any level of plan for any part of our life, for any part of the future, when we do any planning without first acknowledging God's lordship and his sovereignty, without first committing ourselves to him and his kingdom, without first seeking guidance from him on that decision. Any planning is a boasting in, a trusting in, a rejoicing in ourselves and our delusionally high view of ourselves, our arrogance, our pride, as though we're sovereign, as though we're lord of our lives, as though we're supposed to live for ourselves and for our kingdom and not his, as though we're the best place to look for guidance. And James says, all such trusting, all such rejoicing, all such boasting is evil. Whenever you read evil one in the New Testament, whenever you read evil one in the New Testament, I want you to know that it's referring to Satan and it's this exact same word to individualistic, autonomous, self-reliant, by and large, successful Americans. This is going to sound so over the top, but James is saying this, we are like Satan when we look to the future or make any plans apart from a current, vibrant, submitted relationship with Jesus. The essence of evil is this, it's rebellion. It's living as though God doesn't exist. It's living as though God doesn't care what I do with my life. It's living as though the future is mine, even though God created me. Or more tangibly for this morning, evil, rebellion, satanic behavior is living as though the abilities I have to plan and to strategize are for me and my kingdom and not his. Listen to verse 16 again. As it is, we trust in our delusionally elevated view of ourselves and all such trusting is diabolic mutiny, insurrection, rebellion, and evil. And we thought we were simply making lunch plans. Look at what's described in verse 13. It's not a massive hippie movement of sexual promiscuity that includes child sacrifices. It's just the planning out of a today, a tomorrow, and a next year apart from the relationship we have with Jesus and the direction of God by his Holy Spirit. It's just a presumptuous, independent view of life as though it is mine and I can do what I want with it so long as I don't commit any major sins, as long as I don't hurt anyone else, I can do what I want. This is 
this sounds extreme to me. This sounds over the top to me. This sounds almost out of accord with what I think the rest of scriptures teach. But right when I get to that place and try and make it go away through some rationalization, I remember that Jesus says this right down to the nitty gritty. I don't do anything unless the Father tells me to do it. And I don't say anything unless the Father tells me to say it. I'm beginning to realize for me to live out the heart of this passage and be done with presumptuous planning, I'll have to get incredibly close to what Paul commands in 1 Thessalonians 5. Pray without ceasing. Utter, vibrant dependency upon God through the Holy Spirit. So that's the folly and the rebellion of presumptuous planning. Now let's consider what James gives and commands as the alternative, the call to submissive planning. And let me just say right now, this is gonna be a very short, a very abbreviated point. I'm doing it for the sake of time. I'm also doing it because when I preached through Proverbs, I gave an extensive sermon primarily on this idea of submissive planning. In that sermon in Proverbs, I talked some about our capacity to plan evil, and I talked some about the evil that it is uh, when we plan apart from our relationship uh, with Christ. But, but I spent most of that sermon on submissive planning. So this morning, I kind of wanted to focus in on the first half, the first idea, and I thought I would just sort of summarize summarize this second half. And I'll just direct you to that sermon on the podcast if you want more detailed teaching on the wisdom of planning. Uh, So just some thoughts on submissive planning. Pick up with me in verse 15. Instead, instead of presumptuous planning, the presumptuous planning portrayed in verse 13, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, if he desires, if he wants, if he allows, if he permits, if he plans, we will live. So we're going to be alive. Lights won't be turned off yet. And we will do this or that. So so James is not recommending a lip service here, a superstitious piece of jargon to be added to all plans, a protective talisman that brings good luck to my hopes and and desires. One of the major themes we're going to uncover in the book of James is that, that James hates mere words. He is disgusted with anything that's simply on someone's lips and it's not in their heart and acted upon. Lord willing is not a catchy little phrase that sprinkles holy dust over our retirement dreams, but it is at least two things. It is a recognition that God is sovereign over all things. And it is a surrendering of our life to him and his kingdom. If the Lord wills is first. It's a call to recognize the sovereignty of God in the future before we ever start to plan. We orient our hearts to the reality that God is sovereign and everything happens from Ephesians 1. Everything happens according to the purpose of his will. We realize, we confess, we acknowledge before we ever begin to plan that what tomorrow brings to us, what yesterday brought to us was the Lord's will. It was the Lord's plan. When you read verse 15, you expect to read. Instead, you ought to say, if tomorrow permits, we will live and we will do this or that. But the text takes what tomorrow brings and it inserts if the Lord wills, letting us know that what tomorrow brings is what the Lord wills. And second, in saying, if the Lord wills, before we plan, we are surrendering our lives to Jesus. 
before we plan and as we plan, we constantly bend our hearts and surrender our lives to the lordship of Jesus. We're saying that my plans, my life, my days, my actions, my words, they're for your will, they're for your desire, they're for your purpose, they're for your kingdom, they're not for my own. So when James says, if the Lord wills, he's not simply saying if the Lord allows, although he is saying that, he is calling you and I to a surrendered, dependent planning that is oriented towards what God wants, what God desires, and not what we want and what we desire. But secondly, James is calling us to planning. We cannot allow ourselves to overreact as if James says, don't plan. Respond to life and live in the moment. Look at verse 15. How does it read? You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or that. The theme of scripture is this. Planning is good. It is loving. It ought to be done. The Bible is clear, whether it's the teaching of Proverbs, whether it's the life of Jesus, whether it's the ministry of Paul, thinking about the future, leaning into the future, uh, having plans and strategies and goals for the future is incredibly wise, so long as it's submitted to a vibrant relationship with Christ. When, when it comes to planning, we can make a variety of errors, and both errors I know from relationships with you are present in this room. We can sin in two ways we can plan presumptuously or we cannot plan at all. And James hammers the reality home that we are supposed to do a work of submissive planning. He hammers it home in verse 17. So, or therefore, whoever knows the right thing to do. He doesn't say whoever knows what's right to not do as if planning were wrong, but he says whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is a sin. It's a missing of the mark of what God wants in our lives. The distinction is made often between sins of omission and sins of commission. Uh, church people, religious people like me, I tend to focus on the sins of commission because I'm too tired to do that many of them anymore. And sins of commission are those sins um, where we do something that God tells us not to do, like lying, cheating, drinking too much, gossiping, stealing, sleeping around. But the sins of omission, which are just as heinous to God and just as unloving to our neighbor, the sins of omission are those sins where we do not do something that we're commanded to do, being merciful to other people, reading the word, doing justice, living in constant prayer, giving generously and sacrificially, speaking words of encouragement and healing. James takes this general theological truth about the sins of omission, and he decides that this is the context that he wants to bring it up in, the context of planning. James says it clearly in our text. It is the theme of Scripture, presumptuous planning. What we outlined in point one is a sin of commission, doing something we're not supposed to do. Not planning, on the other hand, is a sin of omission, not doing something that we're called to do. Submissive, surrendered planning, to use the words of James, to use the words of Scripture, is what we ought to do, verse 15, and it is the right thing to do, verse 17. Now, <coughs> excuse me, 
I, I want to point you in two directions this week uh, to grow in this concept, both of presumptuous planning and submissive planning. Again, the sermon in Proverbs. But secondly, I want you to plug into your city group this week. If you're not in a group, email me this afternoon. I will get you in one before they start this week. I I had pages that I wanted to preach on these concepts, but I just decided the best thing to do would be to let you know the statements and the conversations and the questions that are going to be hammered out this week in the groups. The groups study the the sermons together uh, on a regular basis, and it's not a recapitulation of the whole sermon, thank God, but, but it is usually trying to grab what is the most most applicable, um, the, the weightiest thing for our lives, and what difference would it make if Jesus saves us and, and redeems us and, ch- and transforms us in that place? And these are the questions you'll get to hammer out this week in your groups. If we truly repent from presumptuous planning and increasingly grow in submissive planning, statements like this, our anger over current circumstances will over time decrease. Why? A statement like this, our anxiety and fear over the future will decrease. Why? Our worship and gratitude for what is happening in our lives now will increase. Why? Our temptation to despondency and withdrawal will become less powerful. Why? Our irritation over interruptions to our agenda will begin to go away. Why? We will ignore people less. We will manipulate people less. We will, um, we will be more honest and more forthright even if it costs us. Why? I know I'm looking forward to those conversations. Plug yourself into a group and begin to grow and to learn with that this week. Last, finally, number three. I know that there's a chance I lost some of you at multiple points in the sermon. If you do not have the hope of, uh, of Jesus, if you do not have an understanding of what he gives us in the gospel, when you realize the insubstantial and transient nature of our human lives, our lives in these physical bodies on earth, if you don't understand the gospel, you are, um, you, you're nuts if you don't check out when I tell you that lights on, lights off. It's just too hard to listen. And if you're like me and this scripture catches you in radical presumption and insurrection and rebellion, if this text shows me that my life is primarily for me and it reveals that to me by how I think about the future, if we don't know that in Jesus we have forgiveness and in Jesus we have righteousness and in Jesus we have the hope for life change, we'll check out. And we'll say, that's it. I just possibly can't handle it. But this morning I want to talk to us about the glorious and the gracious and the eternal gospel. I just want to remind us of what we have in Jesus. That in Jesus, what he gives us primarily, principally what is the great gift that Jesus gives us in the gospel, it's being related to God the Father forever. It is our lives being infused with weight and with glory and with meaning and with significance because forever we will be in intimate relationship with God. If our trust is in Christ, our lives are not transient and insubstantial. Our physical lives certainly are, but our existence, what James calls our soul in chapter two, it goes on forever. What Jesus gives us is he takes away the insubstantial, um, weightless, vaporous reality of our lives and he makes us glorious and 
and weighty and significant because he ties us to a relationship with the Father forever. But how does he do that? He does it by living for us and dying for us in his life. Think about even here, this place of presumptuous planning, this place of a call to submissive planning. Even here, our righteousness, our status, our connection to the Father, our holiness, everything we need is from him and it's a gift by faith. I was thinking about this week, reading City Bible Reading, Luke chapter 9, Thursday morning. It's an example among dozens that I could give from the life of Jesus, from his life and his ministry. In chapter 9, the apostles were sent out to do ministry in Jesus' name. And when they returned, they're so excited and they're so exhausted. They begin to tell Jesus all that had happened, all that they had experienced. And Jesus knew that they were like him and he knew that they needed a rest and they needed time to refuel and they needed space to be able to pray and they needed time to report in very deeply on what had happened. And they just needed some training for the future. And so it says that Jesus tried to withdraw to Bethsaida to accomplish his plan, what he perceived to be the best plan for his disciples. But the next verse says the crowd learned about it and they followed him. And then almost seamlessly, almost if it's it's not a big deal, almost as if it's what you and I would do if our vacation got interrupted. Yeah, right. Jesus welcomed them. He welcomed the interruption to his plan because he was a submissive planner. He welcomed them. He taught them. He healed them. He eventually fed five thousands of them uh, by, by taking five loaves and two fish. And it says the crowd ate. It says the crowd was satisfied. Jesus is exhausted. The crowd is satisfied. And after cleaning all of it up, the next verse says this, that his and the, he and his disciples were finally alone and they were praying. Over and over in the gospel, Jesus is intentional, uh, intentional, but he is interruptible. He is intentional, but he is interruptible. Jesus always has a plan. His plan always gets interrupted. He never gets angry. He never ignores people. He's never irritated by the interruption. In fact, if you know the gospels, the only time that the text says Jesus is irritated is when the religious professionals will not let their agenda uh, be stopped by a man who needed healing. His agenda being interrupted did not bother and irritate him. Other people not allowing their agenda to be interrupted did. Over and over, he stops, he looks, he asks questions, he listens, he heals, he feeds, he forgives. And then you see him going on to the place he was going to in the first place. This reveals a belief in submissive planning. It's wise to make a plan. It's loving to make a plan. It's good stewardship. It's, I'd even go so far as to say it's righteous to make a plan. But it's also humble humility to realize that what tomorrow brings or what the future brings is the Lord's will, the Lord's plan. And our plans often go on hold. They get altered significantly or we must throw them away. Even this, Jesus's ability to plan, Jesus's ability to love planning more than he loved his plan, Jesus's ability to love people more than his own agenda, this ability to focus on others, to be for others, to spend himself at the expense of himself for others. This beautiful life is given to us 
in the gospel. And because of that, the heavenly father sees us in the righteousness of Christ. And he says, I will relate to you and be with you and give you bliss forever. You will be glorious. Take hope this morning, no matter how convicted you feel by the text, that the Father does not see you as one who has sinned and violated the text. If your faith is in Christ, he sees you as one who obeyed entirely your whole life and you will keep obeying until you see him. And his love for you will be unfettered because of what Jesus gives to us in the gospel. But not only does he live for us, he dies for us. Think about the night before he is to go on trial, the night before his death, the next morning, he's in the garden of Gethsemane and he's about to die. And God the Father, somehow he shows Jesus the cup of his wrath and Jesus staggers and he's shocked and he's in horror and he's in sorrow. And he says, is there any other way for this to not go down this way? If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Translation, I want a plan that doesn't include this cup. Nevertheless, not what I will, not what I want, not what I desire, not what I plan, but what you will, but what you want, but what you plan. A few verses later, he checked in on his slumbering disciples. He goes back again to prayer. He again asks, could there be another plan for the redemption of your people and this world besides me drinking the cup of your wrath? But he ends again looking to the future in submission to the Father if it cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So Jesus, the light of the world, poof, lights off so that we can be light forever. Jesus, the glorious weight of eternity, gets lost in the hell of God's wrath so that we could be substantially loved by God forever. And if you think about the logic of the text, if we will increase to believe this, if we will increase to understand this, if we will increase to let this uh, um, grab a hold of us, if we will grab a hold of this reality of what we have in Jesus, we will more gladly, submissively plan to the Lord Jesus. Because remember, our plans are based on a boasting in something or someone. And so when we boast in ourselves, we plan presumptuously. When we boast or trust in Christ, we plan submissively. Let's pray. Most gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for what we have in Jesus. Our minds cannot even begin to understand what you have done for us. Our hearts cannot even begin to feel what we will feel forever in the new heaven and the new earth. We thank you that you give to us sinners by sheer grace through faith. You give to us this eternal weight of glory. We so look forward to living our lives less anxiously, less angrily, um, less uh, irritably. We look forward to living our lives with joy and, and with hope. And we look forward to being people who love others because we're so sure that you love us. Would you continue this transformation in us this morning as we take communion this week as we live in community? In your name we pray, amen.